this is the source of all life for me. 40 to 50 million years ago, when India drifted apart from the Gondwana land and crashed into Asia, forming these mountain systems and creating the habitat for these glaciers to form, you know. And from there downwards, life trickled down and civilizations came along these rivers. Several millennia later, this very life that trickled down continues to uplift, support and nurture people and nature alike. We travel northwards across the evergreen forests, grassland plains and deciduous jungles of the Indian subcontinent towards the soaring peaks of the Himalayas. A place of immense importance to the entire country, yet seemingly disconnected in both time and space. I am Mishika Ramakrishna, a wildlife biologist and science communicator with a deep love for storytelling. Today, through an introspective conversation with two young individuals rooted in Ladakh, we will try to understand how local communities from the higher reaches of the Himalayas have been experiencing and adapting to the increasingly real consequences of climate change. Lobsang Wangtak, glacial conservationist and co-founder of Navikarna Trust, an NGO, and Dava Dolma, an independent journalist striving to bring the people's stories to the forefront of climate change discourse, join me to dissect what is happening in Ladakh today. Let's begin now with Lobzang, introducing us to the isolation of Zanskar in Ladakh, where he grew up. It's a 7,000 square kilometer um, of area uh, which remains cut off from the rest of the world and even from Leh also, it's adjacent town. Uh, for six months, you can't really get into Zanskar or out of Zanskar other than walking on the frozen river trail that takes about a few days, sleeping in caves and walking on ice just to get into Zanskar and out of Zanskar. This form of disconnect, though, isn't just geographical. It seeps into the lives of the people who call Zanskar their home. This, coupled with rapid infrastructural changes, also means that the people have seen an evolution of culture and environments within a single lifetime. When I was born, there were uh, almost no cars or vehicles we could see around. So once in a week, we would see one vehicle and we would run to the road uh, to chase it. And we actually initially thought uh, they were animals too, you know. These rapid changes were not limited to the interior villages of Ladakh alone. The effects of development coupled with environmental changes could be felt even in its central town, Leh. Leave today seems like an adolescent uh, who never got some guidance because the, all the, the negative examples you can find in Leh and it's a classic example of what not to do. Here there were very, uh, you know, limited vehicles at, around that time, right? But now the amount of, you know, vehicles are like, uh, if 
if I'm not wrong, a study is uh, actually shown by the uh, regional transport office says that it's actually seven times, uh, you know, like higher than it used to be, right? Wow. So that's uh, pretty interesting in the sense that uh, it's not only about, uh, you know, the society as a whole, as we don't have any plan, right? There's no like uh, proper plan. So whatever development is taking place, it's so unplanned. It's actually harming the, uh, you know, the environment and the society at large. Lobzang, having grown up amidst these changes and concerns, was both driven and action-oriented. He chose to go back to the root of Ladakh's crises and co-found Navikarna, an organization that works towards mitigating climate change. We started Navikarna in 2019, so 2018 we were still figuring out okay, how to go about it, whether to work with the government or not. So before that, um, we need to go back in 2014 when I understood that there are communities and villages which are facing acute scarcity. So there were we were looking for solutions uh, that were already uh, trialed and tested. So at that time, artificial glacier as a concept, as a as a design, was pretty popular. So this started in later 20th century, uh, the beginning of um, the 90s. But the technique was already uh, experimented in the 80s also. So 1991, if I'm correct, was the first time Padmashi Tsawang Norpal was able to implement that design in a village which was facing scarcity. So it worked. In an artificial glacier, you are making use of the wastewater uh, in the autumn or winter when it's not used. So usually you have a spring source or stream source that is much less than in the summers, but anyway, it mixes with the river or it goes underneath the ground, but the villages and the farmers cannot use it. You know? So it was like um, the, the problem started when snow pattern became very erratic um, uh, later in the 20th century, early 21st century also. Many of these villages had run out of their uh, snow fields or the glaciers, small glaciers they were dependent on. And because um, it didn't snow much in the winter, so uh, there was nothing um, that was lower than the real glacier and they could use in the first irrigation period because there was nothing to melt. There was no uh, snowfall, little to no snowfall in the winters. So uh, this technique was trying to solve this particular period. So in the summers, peak summers, it's very warm. And so the glacier, whatever little le- left in the higher up peaks in glacier, that would melt. But it was usually at the end of April or beginning of May when the farmers need to um, uh, give their first irrigation water. And not that, only that um, they had to also humidify uh, the fields before they start tilling earlier because of enough snowfall because the ground is also uh, frozen and before tilling your land that was enough to humidify your fields you know so and then third thing because of the warmer climate the snow lines of the peaks are also elevating like uh, receding further so it's even harder for this to melt in the initial period when you need it most. So if you miss out on the first irrigation, what do you could expect? No cultivation, almost zero. Um, and this was the particular problem that we were trying to solve and we were trying to solve in my own village and some other villages also. 
Then, as I understood uh, more at the bigger picture, you know, in 2015, we went to collect some um, snow samples uh, from the glacier, Stonde Glacier. That's my village. We have a pretty large glacier uh, compared to other villages. And we went up there to take samples to understand what kind of particles are in there. And uh, we sent it to a laboratory also. So what we found, um, we brought back 20 liters of the snow, uh, melted it at a lower elevation, and let it filter through a filter um, uh, process. And we were surprised to see within the first or second um, filtration, the, the filter got clogged. Now, usually, a, you know, a pure, transparent, uh, clear uh, snow melt would actually go through it like at least seven, eight times before it gets clogged. So we could see with our own naked eyes. So there were dust particles, different types, sand also. And surprisingly, even in 2015, we saw layers of carbon suit, black carbon suit on it. Then I remember sitting there the entire night, I was just wondering, 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 curious about like, okay, so this phenomena of black carbon suit on the glaciers and more quantity because we hear from people you know the glacier or the snow looks much darker than it was 10 years ago to 20 years ago it used to reach all the way down here and now look at it you can't even see it so these are like observations and people's experiences and which cannot be denied also you know then uh, then understood like well if it's receding at such an alarming rate, on top of there's no there's no precipitation that uh, helps in accumulating these glaciers, and there's so much particles and black carbon suit which will make this glacier even more susceptible to melt because it's eating away the reflective layer on these glaciers. You know, so then I was thinking, well, many of these villages have much lesser glacier than this. You know, we can keep making artificial glaciers, um, but then what happens five, 10 years from now when this glacier is not there anymore? You know, then you won't have the spring water or the stream water that you use for making artificial glacier. So right now, the technique is wonderful in solving that problem, it's a, but it's not a solution. It's the bandage solution that we applied before a very severe uh, sickness or severe injury. Why focus on Zanskar though? Is it just that Lobzang grew up there? The largest freshwater reserves in all of Ladakh can be found here. 80% of this water originates in Zanskar itself. It is the epicenter of the massive glacial river that ultimately flows in three separate directions, being most voluminous and plentiful in Zanskar. But what does this mean? A global temperature rise of 1.5 degrees Celsius could reflect very differently in the Himalayas as compared to the plains. Here. This rise could be doubled or even more. When we look at an ecosystem which serves as a bounty of freshwater reserves, one degree Celsius could change a lot. After all, the difference between ice and water is only one degree. And so, 
we need to ascertain how many meters of ice we lose for every degree rise in temperature. But more important so, to every village you see in this high altitude ecosystem are dependent on a snow field or a tiny glacier. Today, these are disappearing. So within a year, you will have villages after villages facing drought. And I'm not talking about a scenario 10, 15, 20, 50 years from now. This is happening right now. In Zanskar today, this year when I visited, talking to villages, we were documenting all that. There were 23 villages which were facing mild to severe scarcity. And we can only begin to imagine how detrimental this water scarcity crisis will be for future generations growing up in Zanskar. You know, if I follow the conventional uh, way of going about life in the community in Malays, uh, getting married is on the top. Okay, so imagine myself getting married and having a family, looking after these fields, having my own house, and then with my brother sharing those lands, sharing those water distributions also. I saw more and more conflicts in my future. We are four brothers. <laughs> we were to share the water day with four brothers. Somewhere or the other, you will have those conflicts. And understanding that, well, it's going to get more severe. And I'm going to part, be a part of that community. And in 10, 15 years, I don't see these glaciers lasting. And it's the same with so many other villages also. So when we talk about bigger picture, then we need to talk about sustainable contextual policies. And uh, when we talk about that, it's not about launching organic farming schemes or uh, cleanliness drives or, you know, just about waste management mechanism. It's not that even when we talk about regulation of tourism, everything at the core of it, what matters is water system and glacier system in the Himalaya, which is misunderstood. When we understand these glaciers, when we understand this water system and how communities interacted with these resources and why villages were only, um, you know, always depend on the glaciers because it's a different context. We don't have monsoons. Uh, the vitality of this Himalayan region are its glaciers and not just for us, for downstream communities also. Fertility of soil and the plains. And in a way, we are talking about, um, you know, if this glacier's reserves run out in another 100 years or a few decades, then it could mean an issue of food security of the world world because these plains, uh, especially the northern Indian plains, are most fertile and uh, contribute a lot to the food uh, security of this world also. And how all of this is interconnected. Having a healthy mountain ecosystem means healthy monsoon in the plains. And um, before we reach a tipping point, it's better to uh, first actually address and define what's the fragility of the mountain ecosystem. You can't talk about carbon neutrality and organic farming very little scales and uh, have exponential growth of vehicles coming into this region. You know, you cannot worry this is going to keep growing so before that we need to define okay there are so many freshwater reserves and there is an impact of this black carbon suit that is being settled on the glaciers which is going to exponentially um, grow the rate of loss of these glaciers 
And when we make the glaciers relevant to the world as large, you know, it's not just our problem. We need to see it's it's a global issue. We don't look at micro pictures. We look at the micro picture at the same time. We make it um, see the macro bigger picture also. Continuing along the search for adaptations and ways to mitigate immediate consequences of climate change, Lobzang and his team came across another solution, the ice stupa. The idea is similar to artificial glacier, but here you're using a pipe to bring down uh, for a few hundred meters and uh, using gravity and letting that water gush out in the sub-zero temperature. So the, um, the significant difference between artificial glacier and ice stupa is that ice stupa has much lesser surface area and it's in a conical structure, so it lasts longer in the summers. So I tried that also, but then, as, as I said, I saw it as more bandaged, short-sighted solution. These are not solutions, these are adaptations which are band-aid. From here, we can zoom further in to understand the cultural implications of climate change. In a system this complex, nothing functions in isolation, and drastic environmental alterations manifest in people's daily lives. The way we interacted with the water system was very, very spiritual and uh, highly respected so you would never contaminate water in any form if you who are you are not even allowed to wash your hands near to a, a, a spring you have to go further down uh, you cannot cut any plant without you know asking for forgiveness you cannot build anything uh, before you put an axe to the ground you have to do certain rituals to ask for permissions uh, ask the spirits which are the water spirits or the ground earth spirits you know it also helped in maintaining that really fragile interaction with the natural world and it was really mutual respect and uh, today it's sad to see the people seem to not care at all there's no faith um so one year of garbage that has been collected in the in the house cannot be dumped anywhere for segregation or there's no recycling unit so you go near a bridge and then throw it in the water you know earlier you would be you would fear that there'll be consequences you know you would get bruises you would uh, be sick for so long uh, it's we believe like there are uncountable number of uh, lives that are residing in within the space that we are in. There's not there's not even one step you could take without uh, you you. There's no way you won't find any form of life. You know, there are form of life and many of them not visible to the uh, naked eyes also. But that doesn't mean you don't uh, they don't exist. So that that respect and that knowledge uh, seemed to be also lost which is sad thing to see because um, it's happening immediately within generation um, because we don't grow up in the communities we don't seem to inherit and inherit this um, this belief and knowledge systems 
and within one generation we lost whatever has made us survive in this the harshest conditions today people know about these places only because there's a road but our communities for generations have been in the harshest of the conditions and the only way they could survive was this mutual respect they would share with nature Apart from the in-situ effects that climate change and glacial melts have been having on the people of Zanskar and Leh, these phenomena have also given rise to several climate refugees who are simultaneously at the mercy of their immediate environs and local governing bodies. I can only uh, talk about, uh, you know, the eastern part of Ladakh, right? The pastoralist uh, community of Ladakh, the nomadic uh, Uh, what happened there is as uh, you know with less of snowfall every years and then uh, drying up of those uh, highland or pasture land and uh, and also it's interesting i think it's not only we can just say that this is entirely due to climate change but then it could be because uh, we are uh, also uh, seeing an angle from uh, education uh, right because uh, the the children of nomads are actually getting access to education but uh, those are like <laughs> uh, not well received uh, you know education from uh, you know various institutions so what happens is like there's a generation gap between the one who adopt pastoralist uh, community and then the younger one are uh, not re- really willing to continue or to sustain the life of uh, nomadic right so what happened is that then they have to relocate or resettle to somewhere else so they need to so especially in choklam sir the place where i live and i'm surrounded with those people so uh, just uh, behind uh, my camps right we have people from karnak which is also a prominent used to be a prominent uh, you know <clears throat> nomadic area and we got a lot of resettlers here and then uh, down below us there's another um, area which is called Tokling also most of them are uh, resettled from the highland of Korsok so i think uh, i can o- i can only tell from that way but then it's interesting especially uh, for tibetans and nomads right we got a few of them uh, in changtang and for them they become a double refugee because they are already uh, politically they are uh, you know seeking refugee in india and now they are you know uh, becoming uh, climate refugees uh, because uh, they no longer uh, you know continue the la- life of uh, their ancestor right so uh, that could be uh, and then that gives a pressure in uh, the urban area let's say <laughs> let's call this an urban area because uh, right now like when i was uh, small or young right uh, the places uh, that i live it's actually empty there was n- n- no one no, no one living especially like from host community now that uh, it's already packed with uh, you know people coming from changdang or people coming down from let's say Nubra, and then we also got some from Zanskar. So I think that adds up to maybe uh, uh, the phenomena of, uh, you know, uh, climate refugees. Clearly, 
there's an urgent need to move beyond band-aid solutions and towards big picture sustainable changes how do we learn from zanskar and go even further and beyond what does the future near and far hold lopsang beautifully illustrates these important aspects of mitigating the effects of climate change in the himalayas i'm very idealistic the reason um, able to do all those and making an attempt to do these things is because there's hope you know so an ideal scenario would be so right now if when we talk about climate adaptation uh, this is what we are working on solar lifting technology in more than 90 of the 90% of the villages um that are along the river so and right now we have a list of 23 villages and we're quite sure within a matter of 2 years we'll be able to lift water in this villages and completely sustain them and not just that create more afforestation efforts to create more carbon sinks for carp you know as the number of vehicles and keep growing up and we're going to create more um ecosystem like this so that any form of precipitation is retained um the, the moisture is retained and groundwater recharges and this solar lifting technology can be used in the winters to create more ice um any forms of glaciers you know and let groundwater recharge let um, more and more um, of this area be uh, afforested those those are things that we want to work and we will be able to do that in two another two years But the question is not just about Zanskar, and it's about any other Himalayan uh, Himalayan region which are facing this kind of problem. And when we were actually, when we initially started to work on this idea and forming this trust and do this, we were not able to find a single organization doing uh, work on water. You know, and uh, we are the sole organization that is doing and that's trying to. you know uh, first um, stand firmly on our feet and we have collab- collaboration that go on then again as, as i said it's bandage solution because um, as long as the river is there we will find a way you know what happens when there is no glacier what happens um it's the tipping point because you see like even without so much precipitation in the winters the the amount of melts and um, in the peak summers because it's so hot is bringing so much so uh, these glaciers are receding um, at an exponential rate but there's no accumulation happening you know so we will see this um, extreme melt and then it'll decline and then completely vanish so i don't know that's um, 100 years as long as there's this with more rivers um systems we will be able to find a solution so more ideal scenario would be like build more arguments build more data and research focus on one case study so for me zanskar is a pilot project not just because i'm from there and that's the first uh, work that i've done there because i still see because zanskar is still not exploited still not under mass package tourism although the threats are very high the more connectivity but we need to do zanskar right you know and if we can do that right we can learn from it and then apply it to other exploited regions and save other unexploited regions will be which will be exploited with more infrastructure development coming in so when we 
build arguments around glaciers and water system, first of all, we are make, going to make it relevant to the world and the country as a whole also. Then the third thing is uh, because you have specific data or specific regions, then we can talk about bringing policies. Maybe tomorrow it's about the government adopting certain regions as just only sustainable tourism models, which would uh, require an extra effort and entries. And there's a cap of number of people who could come in. So let's say 5,000 vehicles allowed in a year. You know, Those numbers will only be derived uh, when we understand glaciers. So ideal scenario would be to understand the fragility and vitality of these pockets, this ecosystem, and define it, and then put numbers, caps, on tourism, on construction, on concrete, you know, on roads, which are not even necessary, but they're just being built because there's money and everybody gets to make money out of it, you know. Today, what is really stressing me out, if there's something that worries me, is this time limit that Zanskar poses, you know? Everything needs to be done now. There is no other year, you know? There's no other time. Everything is coming now with the roads from three different directions. Everything that needs to be done has to be done right now. That is the desperation, you see. <laughs> but you cannot rush everything. Today, if I'm talking about building arguments around uh, water systems and glaciers, I have to do the primary um, uh, and secondary research. I, in my college, I would tell you, frankly, I haven't read one paper in my life. There are no pools of resources which are actually answering those, like, you know, um, the vitality of the glaciers and how unique the ecosystem of the Himalayan uh, ecosystem is. For me, it's really, I have nothing else to lose than the mountains and the waters here, you know. And I would do anything for this. And I see more collaboration and multidisciplinary aspect approaches as the answer. In the next episode, We'll conclude the series in Perambukulam, a community of resettlement sites in the southern Indian city of Chennai, one of the cities in South Asia most vulnerable to the effects of climate change. With a growing homeless population, how is this community building an alternative future that is marked by flooding, sea level rise and life-threatening humidity? This episode was produced by the Grounded Imaginaries Research Project, funded by the V. Khan Rasmussen Foundation. The project partners are the Sydney Environmental Institute, Social Entrepreneurship Association, 
Auroville and India and Bharat together. To stay on this journey with us, follow the project on Instagram at grounded underscore imaginaries and tell us what questions and ideas are alive for you. Help us share this podcast series far and wide to inspire communities in all pockets of the world facing the reality of climate change that an alternative future is possible.